It's Mail Day on Industry Focus. Welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. This is Gabby LaPera in the studio, and I have John Maxfield joining me on the phone. This week, we are doing mail questions that we've received from various listeners. Uh, we are going to do about four, and we may get to bank earnings. We may not. I hope we do. Um, so let's just dive right into it. Uh, the first question we got is uh, from Rob Waters Why are stocks delisted? Um, and originally that was wire stocks delisted from the Dow, but we decided to do wire stocks delisted from the S and P, just because it's a better, like broad index than the Dow. Um, so, in the last few years, I don't think that many stocks have been delisted. But ones that you may have heard of that you that you probably know of would be like a J C Penny or I think Avon was delisted in 2015. Um, there are five basic qualifications that the S&P has for stocks that need to that they need to fulfill generally we'll get to some of the exceptions in a bit um, in order to stay within uh, the index the first is that the S&P is a large cap index and they generally want companies to be above 5.3 billion in order to stay on there and that's 5.3 billion in market cap and just to just to reiterate Gabby's point it's like you know that that saying in in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I can't remember which pirate it was. He was like, "Oh, this is it's this is more guidelines as opposed to hard hard and fast rules." And so each of these things that we'll go through, each of these five components that Gabby talked about, or that that we're going to talk about, and he, she noted, um, all of these are just guidelines as opposed to hard and fast rules. Yeah, absolutely. Um, generally, the exceptions come when. The market is not doing great, and if they were to strictly adhere to all of the guidelines, then there wouldn't be anyone in the S and P, and that would not be great for the S and P, right? So, you know, there's a little bit of flexibility here. Um, the second guideline, the first, like I'd like to remind you, is that it needs to have a market cap um, 5.3 billion or above. Uh, the second is liquidity. So the stocks need to have traded a minimum of 250,000 shares over a six-month period leading up to the evaluation. Um, I think that the the example that we were talking about earlier, John, was uh, Berkshire Hathaway, which is a great company, right? People know about it; it's really stable. But for the longest time, it was not in the S and P 500 because shares were so expensive that people couldn't afford to trade them easily. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those really ironic things, right? I mean, when you think of our biggest and best large cap companies in the world, or in the United States at least, certainly Berkshire Hathaway is at the top of that, right? But the problem is that it shares for all of these years, or not all of these years, but for multiple years, traded above $100,000 per share. And it wasn't until 2010 when Berkshire purchased Burlington Northern um, Santa Fe, the, the railroad, that they did a stock split that then created a second uh, category of shares that then trade for much, much less. And then that is what has made it possible for your, kind of your individual investors to buy and sell it, which boosted its volume, which then made it, uh, which qualified in the, uh, for inclusion on the S&P 500. And um, one thing that another thing that all the companies on the S and P have in common is that they must be domiciled in the U S. And they define this in various ways, right? So they have to file a 10K, um, and then they say that you have to have a plurality of revenue and assets that are based in the U S. Or your headquarters must be in the U S. Um, do you want to expand a little bit on why why they have it that way? Well, I mean, this is a—it's a large cap American index, and so what they mean, you know, plurality is. I'm as a lawyer, it's something that I'm, 
I'm relatively familiar with because it comes into play in Supreme Court decisions. But what a plurality means is that you don't have to have a majority, which would be at least 51%. But if you have, say, assets in five different countries and, say, 30% or 40% of your assets are in the United States, and then whatever that would be, I don't know, 15% each of the other ones, a plurality means the largest of the group. So because it's a large cap index that's based in the United States, they want at least of all the company or all the countries that you're exposed to, they want the, the largest share to be uh, in the United States. Right. And this has something to do with like avoiding tax laws and stuff like that, too. So like some people will will register their companies in, say, like Hong Kong or Ireland because taxes are less. And it just it gets complicated. But in general, that's what they want. They want the companies to basically be based in the United States. Um, the stocks to stay in the S&P, they have to be listed on uh, the NASDAQ or the Dow. And they must also have a corporate governance structure consistent with U.S. companies. So you fill in the blanks there. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what that means. What does that mean, like 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 Enron, <laughs> or does oh that mean God. like Berkshire Hathaway? <laughs> you know what I mean? It seems like the the continuum there is probably pretty broad. I can but only... I, I think the point they're trying to make is that they want you to follow the same accounting guidelines, and they want you to abide by at least the same the same content or the concept of how you should be operating ethically. Right, just like a general and something that's like written down so that people can look at it. Um, as opposed to like shadowy backdoor dealings. I think that's what they're trying to get out with that last one. Um, okay, so so far we've covered large cap index, um, liquidity, domicile. Uh, the company must have a public float of at least 50% of their stock. Do you want to expound on that? Yeah, so you know when a company goes public, let's say Goldman Sachs is an example. When it went public in, I think it was 1999, they don't list 100% of the company, right? They'll list like, I, I can't remember what it was with the Goldman Sachs, but it was, a rare, it was a pretty small percentage, maybe 5%, 10%, something like that. The rest of that, that 90%, whatever that remainder is, is non-floated stock, right? So it's not traded on the active exchange. Well, the S&P 500 wants companies that have at least 50% of that that's floated. Now, like Goldman Sachs in their situation, that float has increased over time as their over as their partners that were you know partners at the time of the IPO have sold out their positions and retired and diversified their assets and stuff like that. But you know, just the idea is that look, you want these to be you know public companies uh, that are highly liquid, and in order for those things to to kind of to kind of come into play, you need a large float. Right, um, and that kind of ties into a little bit into the last one, which is financial viability. So this is probably the most common reason for stocks to get delisted is that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. Um, I think one of the latest stocks to be delisted was Peabody Energy, um, and you saw that their credit rating just got bumped and bumped and bumped again, all downward. Um, so it's just they have to have positive earnings over the last four quarters, and they have to have good credit ratings. They just have to seem like a fundamentally sound business in general, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, this is a again, this is a general rule, right? I mean, like you want like viable. You don't want the S and P five hundred full of these companies don't make any money, right? I mean, like what would that say about an index that's supposed to, that's supposed to track you know the you know the large cap sector of the United States, our biggest and best companies, right? But again, you know the the way the S and P you know the methodology you know lays it out says you got to have positive earnings over the past four quarters. Well, if you went back to the financial crisis, right, and you were a stickler on that. 
but the S&P 500 would be like the S&P 5. You know, <laughs> it's just like, you know, you, you don't want to be like, you don't want to push it so far that it would defeat the whole purpose of the thing. But as a general rule, they're just, what they're just getting at here is that they want good companies that adequately represent what America's biggest and best companies, you know, for lack of a better term, represent. Right. And I'm going to say that in general, I don't, I don't. Ha- I haven't ever seen the S and P delist a company and someone say, "Oh, that was vindictive." It always is kind of like, "Yeah, they kind of saw that coming." You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly right. It's like J C Penney's, right? A, co- a few years ago, I mean, it's like going down, going down, going down, going down. And the S and P five hundred, like finally released, like, okay, fine. You know what I mean? Like, we got to get rid of these guys. I mean, it's getting it's getting pretty ugly here. Oh, and fun fact: when someone gets delisted, someone else can come on. That's exactly right, because it's got to stay at 500. Exactly. You can't have 501. That would be absurd. <laughs> I mean, you could, but you kind of have to change the name, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so tied into this is another question that we got, uh, which is, what determines a company's share price? So a lot of the things that we actually mentioned as factors in whether or not a company can stay listed in the S&P also contribute to share price. Um, so I, this is how I see it. Uh, share price is ultimately going to be reflective of a company's internal fundamentals as well as what the market as a whole thinks of the company's chance of success in the context of the global economy. <laughs> it's kind of a yeah. lot, but to break that do you want to break that down a little bit? No, 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 go for it. Go for it. No, no, it's it's all you, John. It's all <laughs> you. Got you got it. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I mean, and you know, you think about what we're seeing right now, right? So we're on the we're on the back end of a really, really long bull market, right? Where at the beginning of this, stocks, it didn't matter if you were P and G, which is an excellent company, right? Coca-Cola, which is an excellent company, Walmart, Amazon, you know, or you were a 3D printer, it didn't matter what you were, all stocks were hit in 2008 and 2009, right? Mm-hmm. And then out of that, you saw stock prices of certain companies, you know, come back up much more quickly. And those were your solid companies that were improving much, much more, uh, much more quickly. And then as this, you know, everything gained momentum, then you had, um, you know, those more speculative stocks really start to pick up because people are feeling more optimistic about things. They're thinking that everything's turning around the corner. They, they're worth three, four years into a bull market. And it's at that point where everybody like wants to start pouring their money in, right? Which is kind of ironic, you know what I mean? But, um, but yeah, so you have both, you know, the, that underlying market stuff that's going on. And now we have the concerns in China. We have the low oil prices and, all, you know, ISIS and whatever else, you know what I mean? Right. Is going on in the economy. And then so you have those things that are bringing it down now. But then, as to Gabby's point, you also have, and this is one of the things that, that we really preach at The Motley Fool, ultimately, it all comes down to the fundamentals of any company. Because a really good company will survive through a full cycle, whether it's good or bad or whatever it is. Right. There, there are some companies that are down right now, just because the market in general is down. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a bad market. Heck, Berkshire Hathaway is down right now. Like it, it, But that doesn't... Berkshire Hathaway has an outstanding track record and its fundamentals are strong. Like just because it's down right now doesn't mean that there's anything inherently wrong with it. But um, for an example of a company that is down um, based kind of like on what, besides Berkshire Hathaway, besides um, based on what is going on in the global economy, is something that you could look at Chevron. They have a lot of uh, exposure to energy, obviously. Right, they're, just a little bit of exposure. <laughs> they're an oil <laughs> company, um, and I don't know if you've noticed, gas is super cheap right now. That's not great for oil companies. It's not, but let me tell you something. And and Gabby and I talked about this beforehand. There is an oil talk that I can't talk about because I want to buy it. I'm under trading restrictions. But uh, you know, <laughs> you talk to your really big investors right now, 
and um, I'm not one of them. I'm kind of a measly investor, but um, I've, I listen to what they say. Oil is a great opportunity right now. At least, at least that's certainly what it looks like. Looks like to, to you know to a lot of investors. Looks like that to me too. Yeah, um, and then kind of like on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have a company that is probably it's it's a pretty solid company, but there's some internal stuff that's going on right now that it makes it look a lot less valuable than you know you you might think it would be. And Chipotle is a great example of that. Um, with the E. coli scare that's going on right now, there's nothing really technically wrong with Chipotle's fundamentals. If they can't get the E. coli thing under control, like we'll see. But like that should be a short-term hindrance to them. I don't think that there's anything generally wrong with that company. But the shares are a lot lower than what you would expect, and they have been historically. Yeah, I mean they're a lot lower. lower I mean they were they peaked up about well above seven hundred dollars, and they're down into the the four hundred and fifty, four hundred sixty dollar range right now. Sort of way way down. Yeah, it's the point that's with, so cheap. That's like you know, it's not, oh, so, nothing so for cheap. me at all. <laughs> yeah, it like makes me like shed a few tears. You know, I've, I've <laughs> and I'll do, full disclosure, I've been buying some Chipotle too. Um, but the thing about Chipotle, and here's my uh, let me just share my thesis on Chipotle. If you look back right at every single major food service company in the United States. I'm talking McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, all of them, right? Even like Walmart, Costco, Kroger, every single one of them, okay, has been through something just like this. Has, McDonald's had the first well-known E. coli scare in the early 1980s. Jack in the Box had one in 1993, where, and this is horrible, but like, it's important to keep all this in context. Four people died because of the E. coli situation at Jack in the Box in 1993, but yet its stock, after you know things went, the market it was pounded and it went through all the lawsuits and all that kind of stuff, its stock went into return multiple thousands of percent since then. So you have to look at these things and you have to ask yourself, you know, based on history, is this a temporary thing or is this something that brings companies down? And in my analysis of it, this is a temporary thing. At least that's what history tells me. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Um, so the other the other kind of aspect to share prices is um, so we covered global economy we covered internal things um, sometimes share prices are higher than like the book value of the company because people see enormous room for growth and we're really talking tech stocks here that's something that happens a lot with them um, so for example Amazon right now. We looked it up this morning. It's a PE was four hundred and sixty-two this morning. Correct? Yeah, I think that's what we saw. I mean, that's a pretty big PE. That's huge. That's so much. Like, what's what's a typical one for a bank? Like eighteen or something? Yeah, I think the S and P five hundred. I think the the average uh, uh, PE ratio on the S and P five hundred right now is like twenty or twenty-one. Right, and of course, like things vary by industry, but four hundred and sixty-two is high, regardless of what industry you're in. Um, but a lot of people see a lot of potential in Amazon, so they're willing to pay a premium for those stocks, despite they're not being like the present perhaps value for them. Right, and, and just to clarify one thing, it's not so much that the stocks, their market capitalization are higher than their book value. It's really what we're talking about here is is on a you're on a continuum in terms of what you're paying for a stock and what your PE ratio tells you. This is the way you can kind of think about it. If your P.E. ratio is 20, that means you're paying $20 for every $1 of, of current earnings in that company. right? So if your P.E. ratio is 5, then you're paying $5 for every single dollar. So 
the higher the P.E. ratio, the more speculative the stock. And in Amazon's case, right, Amazon isn't, it's not like Amazon is a speculative company, right? I mean, we were talking about this before. I mean, like, Gabby, you buy on Amazon, I'm sure, all the time. I buy on, on Amazon all the time. The, the issue with Amazon is that their success and their growth and their, their growth and their revenue is not reflected in their bottom line because what Bezos does, and Bezos has got to be, I mean, like on the short list of best CEOs in the, in the country, and this is one of the reasons, is that he is taking all of that money they're earning and he's recycling that back into growth. And that's why it's not hitting the bottom line and that's why their PE ratio is so high. Yeah, um, but let's, yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Sorry, I, I kind of like transitioned into the next thing without acknowledging the fact that you're super right on that. Did, you um, put, did I put you to sleep? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I was actually I was actually thinking of another tech stock, um, which kind of highlights the the risk, perhaps um, would be the right word, uh, which is GoPro. Um, when it first went public, uh, it's PE was insane. Um, shares are super expensive, and I have it pulled up on my screen right now. Um, they're currently trading at eleven dollars and thirteen cents a share, and their PE is nine point one two. So that's one of the things that you that you do sometimes see with these companies with these huge PE values, or with that that seem to have like a, be a little bit in terms of stock price overvalued. Um, is that sometimes they do go down? That that is a danger with these. Yeah, and, and the other thing that, that I think that's a great example. I'm glad you brought their PEA ratio up because what that also shows us is that, you know, in a case like GoPro versus an Amazon, there is much more going on behind the PE ratio. So yes, the PE ratio is a good entry to get an idea of what's going on, but then you really gotta look at, you know, what's beyond that. You know, in Amazon's case is cash flow, in GoPro's case is probably you know, I would say how I would couch that is that their problem is that they are over reliant on a single type of product that they're selling. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually looking at their um their five year chart right now for GoPro, and it looks like in June on June 26, 2015, their PE was seventy eight point one seven. Just to give you an idea of how much that has plummeted between the two points, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I did not own those for that. <laughs> that would be rough. <laughs> Although that would be just my luck to own that one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So I guess kind of to sum this up is that at the end of the day. Share prices are going to go down because more people are selling than buying, and they're going to go up because more people are buying than selling. That's ultimately the like nugget of truth to share prices. But those those the reasons behind those people either buying or selling are going to vary depending on the global economy, what's going on with the company itself, and yeah, that's basically it. Yeah. 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 I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, it's more people buying than selling, or selling than buying. Okay, so let's move on to our next question, which is um, from Levi Waddell of South Dakota. He asks a lot of good questions, guys, <laughs> and I'm really impressed. I don't know if you know this, but I used to I used to teach, so I love it when people ask like really good questions because sometimes you're like standing up at the front of the classroom and you're like, I don't even know if anyone's paying attention. Like no one's asking any questions. Like you ask them questions, and I don't know. Sometimes engagement is hard, especially when you teach an 8 a.m. on a Monday morning at a university. <laughs> And you know, you know what the best part about about Levi is? He's from South Dakota, and you know what's in South Dakota? Mount Rushmore, which is awesome because <laughs> it's like it's like our Sphinx. You know what I mean? It's like our pyramid. It's like the thing that let's say humans are not around in whatever it is, like twenty thousand years, there will be Mount Rushmore. 
And then there'll be like aliens, like, well, what is this thing? You know, what were these people doing? Does this look like what they looked like? You know? Not, so yeah, South Dakota, awesome, Levi. Love it. That's hilarious. I, you know, I actually lived in Nebraska for a couple of years and I never made it to South Dakota. And I regret that immensely now because I don't know when I'll, when I'll be back. Oh, I regret that for you. <laughs> anyway, um, Levi asked, uh, what's your take on peer-to-peer lending? He says, I'm returning 11% on the platform of Lending Club, but I'm down around 40% on the stock. Um, would you talk about peer-to-peer lending and what hurdles slash regulations are needed to clear um, before these companies can do well? Do you want to give just a basic description of what peer-to-peer lending, which we're probably just going to call P2P? Yeah, so... Is? so so peer-to-peer lending or, or P2P lending is is basically where you just set it. You have a company that sets up a platform, and they and then if you want to get a loan for I don't know like if we're in the example we were talking about earlier, you know like you want to like start a company that like makes coffee cups with like pictures of cats on it, and then like the cats are like maybe like doing things like riding bikes or things like that, and then like that's your thing, that's your business idea, and you go to a bank and you're like explaining this to the loan officer, and you're like, look. It's going to be a great idea. I'm gonna. It's going to be coffee cups, and then there's going to be, you know, pictures of cats riding bikes, and they'll be saying things to other cats who are maybe like riding on hoverboards. And then the bank is like, well, I don't know. That doesn't seem like a very viable business model to me. So then you'd be like, well, I still need capital. So where am I going to go get it? So then you'd go. You could go to one of these marketplaces, and you could put your idea on the marketplace. And then, you know, people on the other side of that, you know, like you and me, we have some maybe less, you know, a few extra thousand dollars that we're looking to invest and we want to diversify away from stocks or, or real estate or whatever your thing is. And then these people say, look, I'll give you an 8% return on your money. I'll borrow your money and give you an 8% return on that so then you can fund my business to make these awesome cat mugs. And so that's what peer to peer lending is. It's me, a guy with a little extra money going onto this platform and loaning it to, say, you know, Joe Schmo, who wants to start this business with, you know, Making cat mugs, which I'm sure is going to be awesome and profitable, but but um, but yeah, the, the banks don't don't realize that potential. Right, and people use this for all sorts of things besides starting small businesses. They use it to uh, fund uh, the most recent one I saw was student loans, um, mortgages, stuff like that. Just just loans for money for home renovations. And when you go into the loan, when you click on it, it'll give you a description of the person and the thing that they're using the loan for. So it'll be like it's a nurse, and she's between 30 and 35. And she makes, I don't know how much nurses make, like 70K a year. Um, so, so the, 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 and yeah, and I want to, but let me be clear. I'm not trying to belittle what peer to peer lending is, but uh, from the first, you're, you're talking about a very niche market where people probably aren't going to be able to get mainstream credit. And when you think about why aren't these people going to be able to get mainstream credit, then you start thinking about credit risk. Because banks want to give credit, right? What banks do is they sell money via loans, but they're not going to sell money to people that their risk models say are not good credit risks, or at least like, right. well, and they this, have done that in the past, right? That's what the financial crisis was all about. But like theoretically speaking, banks won't, don't want to do that. Right. Well, and then the financial crisis beat them up. So they're very interested in not doing that again. And the thing with banks is they have these super sophisticated models that give them a pretty good idea of whether or not a person is a good risk or not, Um, which when you compare to some of these peer-to-peer lending sites. So, for example, um, Jordan Wathen wrote an article the other day that that showed in it that Prosper Loans Marketplace, which is one of these peer-to-peer lending sites, it's not public yet, but they submitted an S1, which is kind of like part of the paperwork that you need to submit to, to get yourself listed. Um, it says that 
prosper verified employment and or income for 59% of the loans originated on their site. Banks verify that for 100% of people that they give loans to, not 59. <laughs> like that that's a huge difference. And then from those loans where they verified the income and or, you know, employment, they delisted 15% of those, which is that's quite a few. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you think like so so let me get this straight. So they they guarantee they check the income and and the, the credit characteristics of fifty nine percent, and then fifteen percent of those fifty nine percent is that am I re- yeah. were the ones that they then took out? So then, what happened to the other forty forty one percent? Did they were, were they didn't get checked at all? They just left them up on their site. Like I don't. Them, so who knows <laughs> like, how many more <laughs> would have been delisted? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> that's great. And and there's a. I mean, this is really, really, really risky, right? Yeah. That's kind of what the point that you're trying to make. And it's and, I super mean, these risky. And you know what? And, and Prosper is not alone. Like Lending Club, it doesn't disclose how many of its loans it checks. It just says it doesn't check all of them. So who knows what that percentage is? <laughs> like Russian roulette. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. But now here's, now here's the other interesting thing to talk about kind of another specific company. Then you look at like a Lending Club. Right, Lending Club. If you go to their board of directors and you see who's sitting on that board, you have Larry Summers, right, a former Treasury Secretary. Who and Gabby and I talked about. We've talked about this in the past. Like, you know, Larry Summers. He can be uh, controversial in terms of some of the things that he says. But there aren't a lot of people out there uh, in the financial world who really know what's going on who would question his intelligence and what he knows about finance and, and the economy and stuff like that. You also have John Mack, who is a former CEO of Morgan Stanley. You also have Mary Meeker, who is a who's a partner at Kleiner Perkins. So these are not like the Lending Club in particular is not some like fly by night company. I mean, these are established people who know what they're doing. But but they're evolving towards a different business model than the I'm lending to John Maxfield is lending to Joe Schmo. They're evolving to where they will originate small business loans and then syndicate those to like a whole bunch of community banks who don't otherwise have exposure out of their local markets. Yeah, and I could actually totally see that working. But I think part of the reason that people are down on the actual stocks themselves versus like maybe whatever loans they've made within the platform is because there is so much uncertainty there. Um, and it seemed like a great idea when it first came out and then people started reading more and more about it and stuff like I said that came up with uh, with them actually checking who's listing these loans is not certain. Even if that's not even certain, like it's kind of it's kind of sketchy. So until these things get worked out, I don't know that it's a great idea to invest in these in particular. Um, also, this is an area that's ripe for regulation that hasn't been done yet. Um, and until that happens, it's very hit or miss whether or not this will survive in general. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really good point. That regulatory point is actually a really good point I hadn't thought about. Just, you know, as somebody who my real specialty is the history of banking, and the history of banking is made up of credit cycles. And if you go back to basically the starting of the United States, we've had something like 20 of these huge, large credit cycles. And what I mean by that is, you know, where loan losses are really low when the economy is going great, and then loan losses go really high when things turn bad, which is what we saw in that Great Depression, the financial crisis, stuff like that. So the big question to me, and, and I'll provide an answer after I, I, I state the question, the big question to me is whether or not these, these companies or this model will survive a, down, a serious downturn in the credit market. And it's my opinion 
that there is no way they're going to make it through one of those. I could be totally wrong on that, but I, I, the, the quality of the borrowers that are on these platforms, as I understand it, are at the bottom of the barrel. And when the, in the bottom of the barrel, in terms of like your credit statistics, those you, you just see huge loan losses on those yeah. when the cycle turns down. I mean, I guess the other side of that would be where else would these people get money from? And the answer would be like payday lenders, and that's probably way worse than this for them yeah, for especially them, it's way worse but, but they, for the you, people yeah. who for the people investing in it it's way worse for us exactly yeah. exactly but anyway and, and then you can also say like maybe they shouldn't be going out if a bank looks at their business plan or whatever they want money and is not willing to lend it maybe they shouldn't be maybe they should look for other things to do yeah because they could if a bank thinks they're going to default and they do default, it doesn't matter what the platform is, that's going to ruin your credit, right? So maybe maybe that should be a sign to people who are looking for loans over these platforms. Yeah, it's it's a hard question because it's like where if people need the money, where do they get it from? But like if there's such a bad risk, anyway, this is a question that is not for you and I to solve, Maxfield. Um, <laughs> this is philosophy. <laughs> um, anyway, the last question we got to hustle on this, um, which is is basically a combination of two questions, which essentially is asking, what's going to happen to banks with a lot of oil exposure? So the basic question here, I think, is. Or the basic thing to, to understand here is that certain banks are exposed a lot more to oil than others. Um, and the type of bank and the size of that bank is going to matter a lot. So, for example, JP Morgan, yes, it has energy exposure, but it, it's huge and it has a hugely diversified portfolio. It's probably not, it's going to hurt, but it's not going to take the bank out of business. Now, let's go to Texas to a small community bank that has energy exposure both in its portfolio and then also. To the people that it's lending to. So, for example, say you have a guy who works out in an oil field and he has a mortgage with that bank um, and he gets laid off because they're not making enough money and suddenly he can't pay his mortgage anymore. It's going to hurt a bank like that a lot more than it's going to hurt one of your big banks of the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you listen to the, the conference calls, the big banks, I mean, you're talking like 1% of their portfolios uh, are, of their loan portfolios are energy related. And in those portfolios, a lot of these banks are marking those down. They're taking reserves on those, assuming that oil stays at 30 bucks a barrel. So they're being pretty aggressive about it. But the, but the big point, and this is this exactly what Gabby's saying, is that it's the banks that have a large amount of exposure, you know, relative to their whole, their overall loan portfolio, to either the energy market or other markets that would be impacted by that, like real estate markets in Texas. Things like that, and let me just give you just a, a quick example of like how bad it can get. In the 1970s, we had a couple oil crises, and then in the 1980s, you know, so that caused oil prices to shoot way up. And then 1980s, oil prices fell just as fast. When they fell that fast, it basically every single major bank in Texas failed because they were overexposed to energy. Now, I don't think we're going to see that this time, and we may. I doubt it though, but we may. But um, but the point being that. Those banks that are in the oil patch, highly exposed to it, are going to most likely take larger losses than your your big, well-diversified banks. Yeah. Um, something that I've actually been seeing in a lot of 10Qs this quarter is banks will, where they normally wouldn't have said anything at all, devote at least 
two or three sentences explaining what their exposure to the uh, energy industry is and what they have done in terms of reserves for that. Um, obviously, like I said, some banks are super duper exposed. I think the bank that I've seen the most, I can't remember which one it was, but I think, I think it's it was Colin Frost, maybe. Was it around, I can't remember, it's something like 80% of its portfolio was energy related in some way, shape, or form. Oh, I don't know. I don't know who that is. I can't remember who it was. It, I I read a lot of articles every day since I'm also an editor, so it's lost somewhere <laughs> in the haze of editing. Um, but it's just like that's a massive exposure, like that. And it was a fairly small bank, as I recall. So like they're probably in a lot of trouble. And as I recall, they raised their reserves quite a bit. But um, yeah, I don't know. But here's the here's the thing, Gabby. Like, <clears throat> let's say that you look at that bank, right? Mm. And you look back thirty years or forty years. And they've made it through all these other cycles. There may be a very good possibility that they know exactly what they're doing going into this thing, and they know exactly what they're doing to get out of it. So it That's all true. it's a very, very, very fact-specific situation. Um, That's but there are true. instances like Colin Frost has been around. I can't remember like for over a hundred years, and they're they're an oil patch bank, and they've made it through a whole bunch of different crises. So, you know. It seems to me that they know how to get through these things. You know what I mean. Whereas maybe a bank that's newer that hasn't been through all the stuff that's facing oil patch, you know, your, your your confidence in them probably should not be very high. Right. So I think ultimately what we're saying to our two listeners who both asked about this is one: it depends on the bank, right? It depends on the size. It depends where it is. It depends on what its portfolio looks like. Two: it depends on what the bank is doing. And three: it depends on the bank's history. So it's just the same as any other company that we look at at The Motley Fool, where we're looking at its fundamentals and we're looking at its history. And although that's never a guarantee that a company is going to pull through and succeed, it's certainly a good indicator of whether or not it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. <laughs> um, I think that's it for me. We are running low on time. Do you have anything else you want to say, Mr. Maxfield? That, that's, that's it for me. I'll just Let me just throw in one sentence on bank earnings. Banks are going in the right direction. Some of them are going there fast, slower than others, but they're all moving in the right direction. And we will definitely cover that in a little bit more depth next week, um, because we are a, ultimately a financial show, and it's just everything's gotten a little bit messed up by the blizzard here in DC. I was super excited to leave my house on like Thursday of last week. That's how bad it was. Like it was just I was trapped for you're, five days. You're igloo. Yeah. Oh my god. Anyway, so. Thank you guys very much for listening. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thank you guys for joining us. Hope you have a great week, and don't forget, you can contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Yeah, everyone have a great week. <laughs>